You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are in a a three-part message series on the topic of the gospel. And the gospel is really the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The word gospel comes from a Greek word in the New Testament that means good news. So the gospel is good news. The gospel really is a three-part news story. The first part is the bad news about our condition. The second part is the good news, how God has answered the bad news. And then the third part is the news of how we as individuals respond to the gospel. Now, all three parts are summarized in the one verse that we are working on memorizing together during these three weeks. Last week, we gave out uh, these memory cards that look like this, white on the front, black on the back with the verse. And the purpose of these plastic cards is just to give you an opportunity to carry them with you, help you uh, memorize this as we go through these three weeks. So if you didn't get a chance to pick up one of these and want to grab one, we've got some uh, more of these that are available on the ledges behind both of these uh, temporary uh, walls there. So you can pick one of those up on your way out today. But let's go ahead and begin by reading this verse together. It's found in Romans 6, verse 23. So put it on the screen, because maybe not all of you have it memorized. So let's, uh, let's read this together. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This simple verse contains the three parts of the gospel. Uh, It contains the bad news. The wages, for the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. Then it contains the good news. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then the last two words is a critical indication of our response, our Lord. Do we decide that we are going to accept Jesus as our Lord or not? That's the response part of the gospel. Now, we, of course, are all very familiar with bad news. In fact, I was kind of just looking through the news this last week with an eye on, uh, you know, what was some of the news stories that dominated the news, and these are some of the, the ones that dominated this past week. Russia, as you probably know, has amassed 100,000 troops on the border with Ukraine and um, might invade in what would be the largest invasion since World War II. And that would trigger off a series of consequences that really nobody knows. Uh, what might happen as a result of that if they do invade. That was one news story that dominated the news. Another was a number of black universities had to close this week because of bomb threats. Another part of bad news was the national debt reached uh, $30 trillion on Tuesday. They claim that that's a milestone. Of course, it's not a good milestone. Uh, As an individual, you're tracking and cheering your debt rising. You don't understand the nature of basic economy. And our nation, of course, has been on this trend for a long time. And so this is going to cast a shadow on the future for our children and our grandchildren. These are some of the bad news stories that dominate the week. And you could pick any week, and there would be bad news stories that would dominate that week. Did any of you hear or read about any good news that was going on in the world? I mean, I was looking for it. I did did find some. Uh, Tom Brady retired, (laughs) which is good news for those of us who are tired of watching him win. Um, If you're a Tampa Bay Buck fan, maybe not good news. That's bad news for you. But clearly, the news of our world and of our lives just contains a lot of bad news. It always has. The question that I want to address briefly is why? 
Why is there so much bad news in the history of the world, in the history of our world now and our lives? A year and a half into this global pandemic, the Pew Research Center asked Americans for their thoughts on this question. Why is there so much bad news? That was their question. The number one response by a wide margin was simply summarized in the two words, life happens. That's the number one reason, which really isn't an answer as to why things are so bad. It's another way of saying, we don't know. All we know is this just seems to be the way it is. It just continues to be bad. Number three on the list of why these bad things are happening and continue to happen is the reason the Bible gives for all of the bad news, and that is sin. We are very familiar with how sin, of course, impacts the bad news in our life. We tend to minimize, though, how it multiplies out and affects the lives of other people, and we tend to miss what our individual sin has to do with the, the bad news that spreads throughout the entire world. We don't see that connection because it's hard to see that connection. And it's because of all of this bad news that our world has been and will continue to be in search for good news. In fact, we are so hungry for good news that we will fall for almost any promise of things getting better. We want it so bad. But for the most part, the good news that we do celebrate is just a, a break, a, a respite from the bad news. It's not really a solution to the bad news. News of a solution to this bad news was announced to this world by angels on the night that Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years ago. The words of these angels and their announcement are recorded for us in the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 2. In verse 10, we read this. The angels say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. The reason this was such good news then is why it is still such good news now. The angels go on to say, today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. The arrival of Jesus marked an answer to all the bad news. Not just a break, not just a piece of good news to dot the horizon of bad news, but a, but a way to save us, a way to rescue us from all of the bad news. So what is the answer? What exactly is the good news? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at, uh, I think, one of the better summaries of the gospel, the good news. It's found in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. And here's what we read in verses 3 through 4. The Apostle Paul, first century church planner, is writing this. Here's what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for your sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that Paul begins by saying, I am passing this on to you as of first importance. There's nothing more important than this. This is not just one of the many things that we should consider in life. This is the single most important piece of news, the most important truth for any person to understand and then act on. There is nothing that should take a back seat to this piece of news. And the reason is because this news gets at the core of what really is wrong with us and then with this world. And therefore, this news is really a matter of life and death. There's nothing more important than that. This past week, I was sitting in traffic 
And the light went green, and the person in front of me didn't move. I'm reluctant these days to honk my horn because you never know what you set off if you honk your horn. So I just sat there waiting and fuming and wondering what's wrong with this person, why they're not moving. And then I heard the sound of sirens. They had heard it before I did, and thankfully they hadn't proceeded in the intersection because ambulance went racing through the intersection, and after that, then we could move forward. And whenever you hear a siren, what is being said by that siren is, this is a matter of first importance. Doesn't matter what your agenda is right now, doesn't matter how late you are for your appointment, you make way, you pull off the side road, you let the emergency vehicles go past. Why? Because someone's life is hanging in the balance, most likely. This is a matter of life and death. Everybody stop. Everybody pause what you're doing. Everybody pull off the side of the road. Something of first importance is coming by. That's what the sirens and the lights indicate. I think if the Bible came as an audible, I know you can get it on audible, but if it came as an audible version, I think this verse would come with the sounds of sirens and with lights. This verse basically says, hey, everybody, pause your agendas, stop what you're doing, look around. There are people all around you that are dying. This is a matter of first importance. This, as Paul says, needs to be passed on. It cannot be held on to. So what needs to be passed on? Well, Two points that I want to highlight out of these verses. The first is the simplest way you could describe the gospel. Probably more needs to be said, but if you want to say the gospel in one phrase, one sentence, this is it. Christ died for our sins. That's the good news. Christ died for our sins. Now, most people in this nation, in our culture, because of its Christian heritage, has probably heard this sentence in some form. They've probably heard the idea that Jesus Christ died for their sins. But let's be honest, the, the connection, the light bulb doesn't immediately go off for most people. Because it's hard to see, so what is the connection between my sin and his death? That doesn't immediately make sense. I mean, in the first place, we usually don't put sin and death in the same category. Sin and mistakes, yes. Sin and a lapse of judgment, Definitely. Sin and merely being human, of course. But not sin and death. So we hear that Jesus died for our sins, and it sounds a bit extreme and somewhat random. The other part that doesn't immediately make sense is, what does the death of someone else, especially a man who lived 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with us today. That doesn't immediately seem apparent. So we need to dive just a little more into the bad news. I know we looked at some of the emotional side of the bad news, but I want to look a little more into the facts of, of this sin and death link. Why does sin bring about death? Romans 5 verse 12, the New Testament describes it this way, sin entered the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin and in this way, death came to all people because all of us have sinned. So if you read the story of the first sin in the book of Genesis, when the forbidden fruit was eaten, 
you'll notice that Eve was actually the first person to sin. Adam was the second one. It says she took that fruit. After she'd eaten it, she gave it to him. He was standing right there, and he ate. But this says sin entered the world through Adam. The reason is because it was Adam, to Adam, that God gave the command to not eat of the forbidden fruit. He gave that command to Adam. Eve was not there when he gave that command. And Adam was standing right there when Eve ate it, and he said nothing. So it was on Adam's watch that sin entered the world. That's what this is talking about. And that opened the door to sin. And once Adam and Eve sinned, their children sinned and their grandchildren sinned, and now all of us, their great, 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 great grandchildren have sinned. And when the door was opened and sin entered into the world, something else came in through the door with sin. That something else is death. Why? Is this God overreacting to disobedience? Is God that mean and that angry that he overreacts to sin and brings death? No, that's not the reason. The reason death comes into the door with sin is because God is the source of all life. And therefore, the decision to break with God, to turn away from him, comes with death. You know, when you separate yourself from God, you separate yourself from life. That's why in God's warning to Adam about the forbidden fruit, he says, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Not because this fruit had some kind of toxin, some kind of poison that would bring about death. No, he's talking about what's going to happen if you decide to turn your back on me, if you decide to break this relationship, is you literally are cutting the lifeline that you are living on. And that's going to bring death. You see, when an electrical appliance is unplugged, it ceases to function. Why? Because it was designed to run on electricity. You unplug it, no electricity, no power, no life in that appliance. In a similar way, we were designed literally to run on God. We need God to live. He sustains our life. We unplug ourselves from him, the result is death. Not because God is mad, but because God is what we need. So given our sin then, why are we breathing today? Why aren't we all dead? Why didn't Adam drop? Why didn't Eve drop the moment they ate that forbidden fruit and rebelled against God? The answer is God's mercy. We literally are all on life support right now. I don't know how many years I got left. I don't know how many years you've got left, but we're all on life support. God has delayed the consequences of our death so that he might make a way for us to reconnect with him and so that we might decide to do that. Every breath we take right now is through the mercy of God. So now we're kind of like our cell phones. You know, you unplug your cell phone in the morning, and what happens? It starts to die. Not immediately. We usually don't say it's dying until it's, you know, 10% left. But we know that 
the phone has a battery in it, and the battery has a limited amount of time. We've got that bar. We see it going. That's what's happening with our lives. You know, a child is born, and we kind of assume the bar is maybe 70, 80, 90 years, but nobody knows. But we know from that, the moment of their birth, one day later, they are one day closer to their death. They cannot live forever. So we don't, like our cell phones, we don't die immediately, but we, we are all dying. We just don't know what day that will eventually happen. Another way to see this is an image I want to paint. I, I'll never forget the image of people falling from the World Trade Center on 9-11. I was thinking of showing an image, but it's just too disturbing. And I still have it in my mind. You may have it in yours. And because of the height of the World Trade Center, there was some period of time that occurred before they died. But as we saw them fall, we knew they were dead, even though they were still alive. The entry of sin into the world is often referred to as the fall, the great fall of humankind. And it's an accurate description of the condition we find ourselves in. Humanity is now in free fall. We have all jumped to our death because of our sin. We are all dead, just not yet. Now, God has given us two kinds of life. Physical life, spiritual life. We are body and soul. Two kinds of life. And because we have two kinds of life, sin brought about two kinds of death. The physical death, we know all too well, that's obvious. But how exactly does a soul that never ceases to exist die? A soul dies when it is separated from God. That's how a soul dies. We know the link between death and separation because we experience it. When someone that we love dies, what we grieve is not the fact that their heart has stopped beating. What we grieve is what that means to us. Their death is felt primarily as the loss of their presence with us. Because their body has died, we no longer have the chance to say anything to them. We can no longer enjoy their company or benefit from their thoughts. We are experiencing a separation between their souls and our soul. It was our bodies that made the possibility of our souls to connect possible. But with the death of their body, that is no longer possible, came the separation of our souls. Now, those personal connections that we feel with other individuals, with people, they are just a shadow that points to the real connection that we were created to have with our Creator. But each of us has decided to sin, to replace God with almost anything else. And that has caused a kind of death that God calls an eternal because it's our relationship with him. And that is a separation that makes human separations and human sadness in those relationships small in comparison to that loss. That is our ultimate death, a soul death. 
or as the pages of the Bible call it, eternal death. You know, we feel separation from God now in the form of guilt and pain and sadness, but that's only a taste of the sadness that separation from God will ultimately bring and the horror that it will mean. And that's because while we are alive, while we have a body, we don't feel the full impact of the death of our separation from God yet. But once our bodies do die, the extent of the separation between us and God will become apparent. It will be the only reality that will stand. Because at that point, after we've died, there will be no substance that we can ingest into our bodies to make the pain go away because our bodies are dead. After we die, there will be no person that we can fall in love with and be loved by to try to substitute for God's love for us. That will not be available to us. After we die, there will be nothing that we can buy. There will be nothing that we can do to try to take our minds off of this and to make us feel better. After we die, it will just be us before God and no other way to forget about that. And sadly, then it will be too late to return to him. And that is why sin brings death. So the question then is, how do we get out of this predicament? What if we tell God we're sorry? Well, that would be a bit like deciding after you have jumped that it wasn't a good decision. You're right. We should be sorry, but it's too late. We have sinned. We have jumped. We are now in free fall. Well, what if we decide that we are going to become better people? We're going to improve morally. Well, again, that would, wouldn't solve their predicament. It would be like flapping your arms and trying to fly mid-flight. You can flap your arms all you want. You can become the most moral person you can. You're not going to fly and reverse that fall. You can't avoid death. Our only hope is for someone to absorb the consequences of our fall and die for us, to die in our place. This is the central point of the gospel. Substitution brings life. Sin brings death, but substitution, someone can die for us to bring us life. Now, we are very familiar with the idea of someone giving their life for another. In fact, we give our highest honor to those who have given their lives for other lives, the first responders who have given their lives, either in crime situation or on the battlefield, boy, we honor them because we know they have paid the ultimate price to protect us, to save our lives. But that's a death given to save our physical lives. When it comes to sin and the eternal death that's caused by it, how do we solve that? We can't die for someone else because we're already sentenced to death because of our own sin. We are already falling. How can we save other people who are falling? Because we're in the same predicament. And that's why my death, while it may save your physical life, is going to do nothing for your soul. Only one death will. 
the death of Jesus on the cross. What's different about his death? Well, the difference is not in how he died, but in who he was. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. This is substitution language. So that in him, we might become something that is not true of us. We might become the righteousness of God. That's the substitution, his life for us. His sinless life in place of our sinful lives. You know, the death penalty is the highest price our justice system demands. And there's debate as to whether we should even exact that price. But even that never satisfies justice. And that's because guilty blood can never be substituted for innocent blood. It never makes it better. And that's why none of us could ever give our lives in exchange for anyone else. Because the blood coursing through our veins is tainted by our sin. We need our past sin and our death exchanged for life. And so we can't exchange our life for someone else because we're sinful. Only sinless life could be exchanged for us. And until Jesus, that had never even been imagined. There had never been a drop of sinless human blood. You know, some lives carry more sin than others, but no one has ever claimed perfection, and anyone believed it. No one has ever been without sin except Jesus Christ. For 33 years, he walked this earth, and we are told that he was tempted in every possible way, but without sin. That's why he can offer his life in exchange for our life and reverse the death of our souls, eternal death. But being sinless, it turns out, isn't enough to substitute for every life, for all of our lives. You see, I'm not the only one who has sinned. You have too. So you're in need of a perfect life, just like I'm in need of a perfect life to be substituted for mine. But the biggest payment that anyone, even if they're perfect, could make is one life for one life. You know, the five quarts of blood flowing through my veins is all that I have. Once it's spilled, there's nothing more that I can offer. So even if I was perfect and decided to offer my life in exchange for your life, that would only be a one-to-one exchange. After that price had been paid, there would be not enough left for substituting for anyone else's life. But the blood coursing through the veins of Jesus Christ was not only human and perfect, it was divine. Jesus Christ is God in flesh. That's why he can pay the price for anyone who wants to come and have their life sentence substituted for his life. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is one of the many places in the New Testament that describe the deity of Christ, the fact that he is, in fact, God. Here's what it says, verses 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I want you to notice the divine markers in these three verses that point to Jesus Christ actually being God. It says he made the universe. Humans can't do that. I have a hard time making lunch, let alone the universe. We can't do that. Angels can't do that. Only God creates. It goes on to say, right now he is sustaining the universe by his power. This is an amazing claim. You and I are breathing because Jesus Christ is sustaining your life and sustaining the universe. Only God can do that. That's not good man can do that language. That's not great prophet can do that language. That's divine language. Only God can do that. Now, when Jesus took on a body, he didn't look like God. He looked like a normal Palestinian man of his day. But it says he was the exact representation of God's being. Not a slight approximation, but an exact representation. People can't be an exact representation of God. Only God can be. This is why only Jesus was able to, as it says, provide purification for sin. And now he is back in heaven at the right hand of his Father, the majesty of heaven. Sometimes people get confused because God describes himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is a mysterious truth. But they begin to think that the Son, Jesus, is less than the Father. But Jesus is not less God than the Father, any more than my Son is less human than me. It just describes the nature of our relationship. So let me summarize it this way. We jumped off the cliff of sin. All of us. God became a man. His name was Jesus. Why? To jump after us. He died for us. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed the full consequences that our own sinful choices deserve. And what he says now to us in mid-flight is grab a hold of me. Hold on to me. So that when you die, my death will hit the ground first and absorb your fall. Your body will not survive that fall, but your soul will if you die in Christ and allow him to absorb that fall. We can't reverse the fall caused by our sin, but we can decide how we will fall. Will we fall alone, flapping our arms wildly, trying to prove to everybody that we're not that bad? Or will we fall holding tight onto Jesus Christ? This is the gospel. The best news to counter the worst news. The bad news, we've sinned and that causes death. The good news, Christ's death can be substituted for ours. I want to wrap up by looking at one phrase that's easy to miss in these two verses in 1 Corinthians 15, and that is according to the Scriptures. 
These verses in 1 Corinthians 15 contain three pieces of history. Here are the three pieces. Jesus died for our sins. There was a moment in time and a place. You can go to this place and see where Jesus died. That's a piece of history. He was buried, another piece of history. And he was raised on the third day. He came back to life, another piece of history. Two of these three pieces of history are attached to the phrase, according to the scriptures, and one isn't. He died. He was buried. That doesn't say according to the scriptures. It just says he was buried. Why are two of them attached to the phrase according to the scriptures and one isn't? Well, it's because the fact that he was buried is obvious. There is no dispute that Jesus was a man of history and that he died. You don't have to be, you know, amazing to come to the conclusion that someone who lived is dead. Everyone dies and is buried. What is not obvious is the other two parts. That his death had a purpose. It was for our sin. And that his death turned into life three days later, which is critical because it proved that everything he said and everything he did was actually true. He really was God in flesh. So the only way you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus died for your sins and that he was raised on the third day proving that his death is sufficient. The only way you'll believe that is if you believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And what this means is that those who believe and accept the gospel are also those who have decided that the Bible is their authority in life. Those two go together. They're not separate decisions. You see, Christians don't just believe Jesus died for their sins according to the Scriptures. They live their lives according to the Scriptures. Those go together. They are the individuals who have considered all of the evidence that points to the fact that the Bible contains God's words. I don't have the time to go into the evidence. There's lots of it. But they investigate the evidence. They come to that conclusion that these words aren't just human words, but God was speaking through these individuals. And they decide they're not smart enough to figure stuff out on their own and to run their own lives. And so they follow the instructions of God's word. They follow Jesus Christ in the days of their life. None of us do it perfectly, but the Bible becomes our compass, becomes our guide. And as lost as we get, we pull the Bible out and try to figure out what are the principles from God that will help me figure out the next step. And we do that. You see, the gospel calls for a response with life-altering implications. It's not a question on a test that you get right or wrong. It is a question, but it's not on a test. It's more like a, a why in the road, a fork in the road that will determine the path you take for the rest of your life. There is often a moment when a person decides to accept this gift. But it's not a moment that we then move on from and forget about and do our own thing. It's a moment that changes every moment that follows. It's kind of like the moment when I married my wife. On that day, I said, I do. And every day since then, I've been learning how to say, I do. The good news is that the God who saved me 
is forever faithful. You see, my grip on him is tight, and then it's loose, and then it's tight, and then it's loose. His grip on me is a grip that cannot be broken. When we grab onto Jesus, the best news of all is he grabs onto us and does not let go. That's great news. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the price you paid to die in our place. And it's very hard for us to see the effects of the fall because everyone around us is falling also. And so, just as a reference point, if we look at each other, we're all look like we're about the same, a little different, but we miss the fact that we're all in free fall. We're all dead, just waiting for the time. Jesus, thank you for jumping after us. Thank you for dying for us. I pray for those in this room who have decided, not yet decided, to grab a hold of you that they would do that. And then, Father, we think of all of our neighbors and friends and the people we work with that are falling to their deaths like we are, but are falling alone. God, I pray you give us opportunities and the courage to tell them the good news and that they would grab onto you. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.